I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. I'm here in the studio with senior producer Taylor Quimby and executive producer Maureen McMurray. Hello. Ahoy. What are we doing? So, it's that time again. We, um... You said that, you said that last time. You can't, we can't start every Ask Sam with, <laughs> it's that time again. It's my catchphrase. <laughs> it's my... Um, so it's time for Ask Sam. Why do geese make bees? Does a bumblebee sneeze? Can a person eat trees? Can a polar bear freeze? Is a kidney stone kind of like a pearl in a clam? Well, I don't know. Ask Sam. Are you ready? I got my pen. I got my paper. As soon as you're ready, I'm ready. Okay. Here it goes. It's going to write down, I don't know. I have no clue. <laughs> Who should I call? <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if this one stumps you. Hi. My name is Eric. I'm standing in the middle of Blue Job State Forest in Stratford, and it just snowed. And there are all these tiny little black bugs crawling around the snow and look like snow fleas. I don't know what they are, but there's probably, oh, there's got to be billions of them because they're everywhere. And I was just wondering, what are they and where on earth do they come from? Thanks. I know the answer to this one. Yay! This, I think, might be a first. Oh, uh, I didn't know the answer. There were some that I knew the answer that we didn't broadcast. (laughs) We cut out all... (laughs) They were less interesting when Sam didn't know. (laughs) Okay, anyway, but answers. Uh, So, they are springtails. They are not actually insects. They're hexapods, which is something that, like, predates insects. Ah, yes. Yeah, so (laughs) springtails, or snow fleas or springtails, live in the soil most of the time, and they're called snow fleas because they come up into the snow, uh, and I don't know why they do that. So maybe that's where I'm going to have to call and ask somebody. Hello, Gwen Pearson. 
Okay, so this is Gwen Pearson, who runs the insect zoo at Purdue University. And so she actually uses springtails in her zoo. They have a function. You can actually buy them on the internet. What? Well, you can buy anything on the internet, really. Yeah, what, but what a, are they? But why are they being sold? Why? Like, is it just for folks like you? No, they're cleanup crews. They're super useful. They eat mold. Okay, <laughs> we're gonna have to dwell on this for a second. Sure, no problem. <laughs> so, like, if you had like a moldy bathroom for or something, like like well, a bad exhaust. Well, that would be a little thing. tough. Okay, yeah. okay. So, so what we have um, are so I have a variety of tropical insect species. And in particular, our tropical spiders. So I have, um, for example, um, a Brazilian bird-eating tarantula, who's about the size of a little smaller than a dinner plate. Those things are crazy, the Goliath ones. Um, And she needs really high humidity and high temperatures to be happy. But that also means that there's a constant risk of mold in her cage. And so what we do is we put springtails in, and springtails eat fungus spores. Um, and so they will run around and they will snarf up all the fungus spores. And so we don't have to worry about mold in the cage. That is wild. And they're so teeny tiny that the tarantula could not care less about them. So springtails. That's awesome. Isn't that cool? I love to imagine them snarfing. (laughs) (laughs) Something so small can only snarf. Snarf, snarf, snarf. (laughs) But yeah, they, they, so they sit down in the soil, they eat fungus. Um, we see them when they come up in the spring, um, to have uh, what what she referred to as a room springer, uh, where all the snow fleas get together and breed. In the... <laughs> um, but and and it's like not clear exactly what signals that. It may actually be that they actually are running out of food in the at the end of the winter, and that's why they come out when it's still snowy. Is there's like they've like run out of things to eat down there, so they come up, they breed, lay eggs, die. Um, but we don't really know because, like all of these tiny things, we don't know a ton about their life cycle. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, and they're everywhere. They're not just in snowy places. It's just that we're the ones in snowy places. We're the ones who see them because they stand out against the snow. Hmm. So. Um, they're not harmful at all. They can't do anything to people. Although, um, if because the one thing I have heard that if people are crouching down to look at them closely, um, be careful not to snort them. Um. <laughs> Snorting <laughs> springtails. So, you know, you can like have your magnifying glass. And yeah. You're like trying to get in there and then like see something amazing, a sudden inhalation <laughs> of breath. <laughs> what a way to go. Snarf, snarfing and snorting. <laughs> okay. Do we okay. still know why they're, why they're called snow fleas? Is it just because they kind of look like fleas? Well, they jump. Um, they've uh-huh. got, and they're called springtails because they've got a little spring structure on their butts. And so that's the way they avoid danger is if something comes near, they activate this thing and it sort of flings them into the air. Um, so they do. They they spring similar to fleas, uh, and that's why people call them snow fleas. Case closed. Case closed. Like that was a very solid job solving that one. Sam. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you ready for the next one? All right. Hello, this is Aubrey. I'm currently in Bridgeton, Maine, and I wanted to ask Sam about wind because anecdotally, I feel like there's a lot more wind recently than in the past. And I'm just wondering if there's any correlation between increased wind events and our global warming situation. It seems like intuitively, if there's more energy in the atmosphere, there should also be more wind. But maybe I'm just imagining it. Thanks. Bye. Oh, she didn't give a callback number. Oh, I don't know how we'll find her. You... I, I think there's a disclosure required. <laughs> That's my wife. That's all. That's my wife. So, so do you? 
Maybe you can clarify this. Does she mean increased wind speeds or an increase of wind in general? Wind in general, like more windy days. I don't, you know, I have to say that I moved to New Hampshire three years ago. First winter I was here, no wind. Past two winters, I feel like it's been getting windier in New Hampshire. I mean, I I will say that I also think it's been getting windier, but I mean, I like ride my bike to work and the number of days where I'm riding home and it's blowing in my face and it feels like I'm cycling through peanut butter seem to be on the rise. And that's that's really like there's no measurement here. It's just me being like, yeah. I'm grumpy because I'm going slow. Um, OK, call the wind expert. Yeah. Do you have a wind expert? Do I have a wind expert? No, I don't. Okay. I'll find somebody. <laughs> Hello, Ian Young speaking. Hey, Ian. This is Sam Evans-Brown. Hello, Sam. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for staying up late for me. That's okay. This is a very easy answer. The answer is yes. And this one comes from Ian Young, who is a professor at the University of Melbourne in Australia. Melbourne? Melbourne. 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 So what we think is happening, and we're not certain on this yet, but what we think is happening, it's not just that sort of every day is windier than it used to be. Uh, What we think is happening is that the extremes are getting more extreme. So there are, there are more storms uh, and there are more intense storms as well. It is getting windier. Um, it may be that there are more windier days, but they don't, they're not 100% sure. Are the data being driven by a couple of big storms blowing around or is it, or is it just like more background wind? If it's simply that the mean conditions have increased by you know, 5 6 7%, that's probably uh, not, a, not a big problem. It's certainly going to make you uncomfortable cycling to and from work. But if, as we suspect, it's in fact that uh, we're getting more storms and more intense storms, uh, then this has real implications for all sorts of things. So it will mean that during storms we'll have bigger storm surges in the the ocean, which means you'll have greater flooding and and coastal inundation. It means that the the loads being exerted by the wind on on our buildings and structures go up. So... Uh, from an engineering perspective, we need to be able to design for those. It's weird to think, though, that it's just, like, windier all the time. You know what I mean? Like, you could say, like, when I was a kid, it wasn't this windy. <laughs> and, and you wouldn't be a crazy person for saying that? And it's also interesting. I mean, of, of course, there's a huge, like, environmental issues to deal with, but also the psychological issues of wind, because my husband is from Oklahoma and has um, family that lived through the Dust Bowl, and they often talk about how the wind would drive you mad. Not to, not to make light of a serious subject, but I also know that you and your husband hate wind chimes. Which... Oh, oh man. I can't, <laughs> have you heard this, It's just Sam? a windier and a wind chimier world. I can't. Not in my backyard. <laughs> I, I hate gonna, wind chimes. We're going to get mail about this, I hope. It's just such <laughs> an... Imp- uh, we can discuss it at a later time. It's like noise pollution. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I moved here from New York City where, um, y- you know, there's a constant din. And so when we moved to New Hampshire, I just assumed that people would, you know, really appreciate the silence. And then we moved into a neighborhood and our upstairs neighbor had these like really, first of all, they sounded terrible, these like real tinkly wind chimes. And I would be sitting on the porch and that's all you could hear. And I feel like that's so inconsiderate to just assume like, well, I like the sound of this. So you have to listen to it anytime it's windy. And, and Taylor made fun of me for this, but I said it's the equivalent of like, well, I like Steely Dan, so whenever it's windy, I'm going to blast Black Cow, because that makes me feel calm, and you just have to deal with it. I just don't understand why wind chimes are like socially acceptable. <laughs> My favorite thing was Danny at one point said, 
I don't understand why you wouldn't just take them in when you're done listening. <laughs> yeah. And they're just up on even when they're not home. Yeah. Just ching chime in. Yeah. A little PSA here yeah. for the for the the wind chime owners of the world. <laughs> Bring in your wind chimes, people. <laughs> Especially I mean they're gonna be seven percent louder. I know. Yeah. Outrageous. None of our neighbors have them now. We moved. Um, okay. Here's the last one. Hey, good evening, Sam. This is Alex calling from somewhere. And uh, my question is, I was just in North Carolina and went up to Mount Mitchell, uh, which had a sign very proudly proclaiming it to be the highest peak west of the Mississippi. But we all know that's false because the highest peak west of Mississippi is Barbaro Peak up on Ellesmere Island. So wondering how the state park system can get away with such a catastrophic lie to the public. Uh, If you have a good answer, I would sure appreciate it. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. How they can get away with such a catastrophic lie. Uh, So, okay. So here, first of all, we should note he, he misspoke. He said West. West of the Mississippi? Is it east? Yeah, it's east. Yeah, west of the Mississippi. There's all sorts of big peaks there. (laughs) That's where all the big mountains are. The Rockies (laughs) are west of the Mississippi. (laughs) So, okay, I'm pulling up the sign here. Mount Mitchell sign. Okay, here's the image. Mount Mitchell, highest peak east of Mississippi River, elevation 6,684 feet. And he is correct. Barbo Peak is, in fact, 8,583 feet. It is a bigger mountain, and it is, in fact... East of the Mississippi. So, what's but it's going in on? Canada. It's in Canada. Come on, it's in Canada. Oh, yeah, this, so this is this is definitely like an issue of semantics here. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, how do you even answer <laughs> this question then? Like, do you just should we just call him back and argue with him? Mm. Should should we call him? Yeah, yeah I think we should. Okay. Well, hang on. Good morning. Hey, good morning. This is Sam Evans Brown. I'm calling from New Hampshire Public Radio uh, with the podcast Outside In. Okay, far out. <laughs> I guess what we're kind of wondering. I'm here with Taylor Quimby and Maureen McMurray, who are the producers of the show. Yeah. Hi. Also, also um, you know the people in the corner who like make jokes and stuff. Peanut gallery. The peanut gallery. We're the peanut gallery right now. That's us. <laughs> Fantastic. We, we were just talking about this question, and I guess what we're wondering is what what are you hoping for from <laughs> us exactly? Uh, I'd like to find out what the uh, thought is from these guys on false advertising. I mean, it's a uh, feel like they're brazenly stealing a title that doesn't necessarily belong to them and wondering where they're getting the cojones to pull that off. I will say it is bold. It is bold. But yeah. but but don't I mean, isn't this just a semantics question? Do we do we really need to do we need need to go after Mount Mitchell State Park for this? Because we were talking about this. I mean, if we're talking east of the Mississippi, that really encompasses the entire globe if you go far enough. Mm. I think what's implied there is North America, and um, sure, it's a matter of semantics, but, you know, you could also say as a matter of semantics that Hillary won the election because she did on the popular vote, but um, the reality is uh, that it's a little bit different. Right. So so you're you're making an argument for, uh, you know, details matter. Truth in advertising. All right. Yes. Can, can I come at you for a second, though? Because if, it, if, if we were talking about real details, real truth, then technically uh-huh. east of the Mississippi could only be east of where the actual Mississippi is located and therefore wouldn't uh-huh. reach as far as Canada. Oh. Yeah, because when you look at Mount Barbo, it is way up there. There's no Mississippi to the west of that. 
All right. I think you've you've certainly made a valid argument there. <laughs> <laughs> this is layers of truth. It's like an onion. Um, so, and I had one more question, which is, you know, you describe it in your phone message as a catastrophic lie, um, and I'm curious uh, what the catastrophe is. Just curious. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, being a bit of a, a pessimist, you know, when I uh, hiked up there and saw all the people with their selfie sticks and then um, posting that they had been to the highest point uh, east of the Mississippi, I feel like they're unfortunately um, perpetuating a falsehood. You know, and it started was actually when my wife and I were doing ski patrol and she uh, overheard somebody pointing out a distant peak. Um, to one of their friends when they were trying to brag about it, and she had to turn to them and say, actually, that's not the right peak, because uh, they thought it was half dome in Yosemite. She said, no, that's balloon dome over there that you're pointing at. And the woman was just distraught and said, well, but I've been telling people for 40 years that that's um, half dome that I've been pointing at. And my wife looked at her and said, well, you've been wrong for 40 years. Well, you guys had like a lot of fun to hang out with. <laughs> I think that I actually might fit into the same category of person, so we actually probably would have fun. <laughs> and it sounds like like you're you're just concerned about the decline of truth generally. Yeah, I guess we should just finish off by saying, Alex, I think they're getting away with it, and their sign's not going to change. So I'm sorry, but <laughs> that's how this is ending. Just bring some Post-it notes next time, and just yeah, yeah, keep putting Stick them up. Them or like a guerrilla campaign with some um, pre-made bumper stickers to just slap on there repeatedly. <laughs> oh, man, we should. If people are going, I would love to see a photo if someone actually does that. Yeah. Send it to us. Yeah, okay, so so that's a call out to outside-in listeners. If you're going to Mount Mitchell, uh, you know, make your own caveat at the end of the sign and, and send us a photo. But maybe not I on the actual it. sign because we don't want to get in trouble. Yeah, don't yeah, deface. So like, yeah, yeah, no, no vandalism. Like bring a poster yeah, board yeah, next yeah. to it. Yeah. Don't do anything illegal, but do something we can see and send us a picture. <laughs> Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Molly Donahue, Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Logan Shannon. Our theme music was thoughtfully composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This week, thanks to Gwen Pearson and Ian Young for helping me to sound smart on the radio and to the folks at Mount Mitchell State Park for enduring our pestering. You can subscribe to the show in iTunes or however you prefer to listen, usually by pressing that button that says subscribe. And remember, tell some friends. Teach them how to podcast. Help us market this thing. Our website is outsideinradio.org. We tweet at Outside In Radio. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Did you guys ever um, read Calvin Hobbes when you were a kid? Oh, my God. I, I collected them. I had all of them. <laughs> Do you remember the one where Calvin asks his dad what, what wind is, and his dad doesn't know, so he says that it's the trees sneezing? <laughs> oh, I like that. I think that should be our answer. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> is now.